This New America NYC event was recorded on June 23rd, 2015, and is titled Southern Rights, a social cinema screening with From Moment to Movement, and features Jillian Lobb, Kai Wright, and Stephen Gray. Anna Rich, the very brave student that wrote this letter, her prom had since passed. So the next segregated event was homecoming, and that's in the fall of 2002. So we went to Montgomery County in 2002, and I photographed the segregated homecoming events. For Spin. For Spin Magazine. And it was published. Um, and this is kind of pre-internet, so nothing really became viral at that time. So instead, you know, people bought Spin Magazine, and it took two years for them to um, realize that there was something wrong with the segregated homecomings, the, the town, and they had since integrated the homecomings. It took two years. Um, I had then um, embarked, in, in, at the same time in 2002, I embarked on a big project in the Middle East. So I moved to the Middle East, but I knew that I was haunted by what was happening in my own country. And the, the entire time I was there, for the next five years, I said, I have to go back to Montgomery County. I have to. I was haunted by this place. And I kept in touch with the two sisters, um, Julie and Anna Rich, um, who wrote the letter, and they had since moved away. So in 2008, when I was back, I said, I, I have to, I just got to call the school and find out what's going on in the town. So um, I called the school, and I asked, when is your prom? And the administrator said, oh, which one? Uh, the black folks' prom is, no, she said, sorry, the white folks' prom is in a couple days, and the black folks' prom is um, in two weeks. So I, I called the New York Times Magazine up and I said, um, I have to go do this. They're still having segregated proms. This is insane. So I went down to, on the, I was on the next plane to Georgia. Were you formally commissioned by the Times at that point or did you do it out of your... I, no, I, I worked for the Times um, a lot and I had worked regularly with the editors and you know they, were, they couldn't believe that this was really going on. They were like, are you sure? And I said, no, no, I'm, I'm positive. And I sent them the spin piece and I showed them, look, this is the story I did in 2002, but the proms are still segregated. And they were like, okay, so they called and time was really of the essence because the white prom was two days later and I didn't know anyone in the town at that time. So I just kind of showed up like a weirdo stalker. By yourself? <laughs> yeah, I was by myself. Um, at, I had an assistant with me, a photo assistant. And they were just, we kind of scrambled. They called their bureau, chief, their bureau chief in Atlanta, the Times paper bureau chief in Atlanta, and they sent a reporter to meet me. When the reporter got to me, there, there was, a, um, there was a, a parent that had recognized me from 2002 and lost her mind. What happened? She, okay, so I don't want to make this too long. It's, it's 20 seconds. Okay, so basically a parent, um, I, I found students that um, would allow me to follow them. So I was photographing them and a, 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 a woman came over and said, I know why you're here, go back to where you came from. And I got scared, I said, I'm not photographing your child, don't worry, I have um, permission here. And the next thing I know, there are cops and you know, county sheriff coming to the table that I was at and threatening me and saying, go back to where you came from, everyone here is part of the NRA and they'll take the law into their own hands. We won't be able to protect you. Welcome to the South. <laughs> 
So I was scared. Um, and the next thing I knew, tires slashed, and we were, and I, the worst part, I felt so stupid because I pitched this to the New York Times, and here I am saying, I'm sorry, I can't, I'm not, I'm not going to be able to do this. So I met a young girl, Kiki, who you see in the film, and she was actually so excited because she was going to be the first black girl to go to the white folks prom, she said, and she wanted me to follow her. And sadly, she called that night and, and hysterical crying that she was disinvited to the prom by her boyfriend, by her best friend Dylan, because his mom didn't feel happy about him going to the prom with her. So I went back and I photographed her at the black folks prom that she said. And that's where this all started. Sorry, that was a long answer, but. No, it's cool, oh, it's cool, it's cool, Julian. But, but like, you're an outsider, right? You Correct. don't have a Georgian accent. Um, how, did you, how did you sort of get this community to trust you, it's, it's key stakeholders to trust you, especially given what you, know, you had published just a few years earlier. Well, um, there were, the, the black community was really, I felt kind of taken in because they knew that I wanted to tell their story and there were a lot of people that wouldn't talk to me on record because their livelihoods. Black people, that is? Yes, from the black community. Their livelihoods and their jobs depended on keeping quiet. So that was really hard because I, I had to respect their privacy. But there were enough people and students that really did want to share their story. I got turned down a lot and, and you know, intimidated by people that wanted me to get out of town, but there were enough people that said, you know what, we believe in what you're doing and we want to share our stories. How did you get some of the white community stakeholders to open up to you? I mean, I approached it like I approach everything and I, I really wanted to understand this tradition. I, I, I simply was like, please help me understand why this is still going on. I just, you know, clearly they felt there was some pride in it. So I just wanted to understand. And I think the people that talked to me really just responded to that. What, how did folks in, in Montgomery County explain how and why you know, this segregated prom tradition had persisted into the early 2000s? Like, what, what were they thinking? I mean, I think that people just, ex they were f afraid of change. And the parents, it was the older generation. So, you know, a lot of people, you see even Kiki in the, you know, she has this revelation. Oh, God, yeah, this, this happened to me when I was a kid. They were teaching this as a kid. They didn't know any different. Um, and they, it, it's really the older generation that was just trying to, to hold on to this so tight. So your story comes out um, in May of 2009 in the New York Times Magazine. What happened? What was the response? So, of course, there was some national outrage, and um, I think the town was, was surprised, actually. Um, and they decided to say that we are going to have our first integrated prom the next year. And that felt really triumphant. So then what? Okay. For you. <laughs> so I decided that um, I needed, I, well, I knew that I needed to be there and to document it. And I also knew that the proms and these segregated events were just kind of, I felt that they were symptoms of something larger. And I also felt like photographs alone couldn't tell this story because 
photographs of kids in prom dresses just, it wasn't telling the nuanced, complex story that I was witnessing firsthand. So I kind of taught myself how to make a film. And um, I took a crash course in filmmaking that How do you, do, how do you even begin to, to make that transition from still photography to... Um, it's really hard um, by screwing up a lot. <laughs> And, um, you know, the original footage is, you know, a lot of it is unusable because I, it's, it's, it's really hard to make that transition, but I, the story necessitated it. I, at all, I had to figure out how to do this. So I just really trial and error and I had a year to figure it out. So, um, and the tools became easier. So, you know, 10 years ago, I, it would have been much harder, but the tools I had were, it's, it's easier to make a film technically now. Um, so um, I started filming, and I, you know, you saw I didn't get, I wasn't allowed to attend the prom, but I wanted to tell a story about um, this community going through changes, and I, I really thought Calvin's story was the story of hope, and I thought for sure it was it was a shock to me when he didn't win, a complete and utter, I was devastated. So that was a story I was going to tell, and then. Clearly, you know, a much more tragic story um, unfolded. Kai, you um, you think very deeply about uh, the intersection of race, power, and justice in America. What were some of the lessons you took from the film? Well, I have to say, I was um, I, I kept thinking of two places uh, I had reported on recently. Um, I, I spent a good bit of time in South Georgia myself at, in Albany in Doherty County. So Doherty County is in the southwest uh, part of the state. Uh, and, and Montgomery and, and Toombs County are in the southeast. But all of South Georgia is, um, is, is notable. The context for, um, you know, when we talk about what, what, are, what, are the, what are the forces behind this, it is a place, we have a, we have a growing number of places in the United States that have arrived in permanent poverty. Um, as a consequence of, of, of many forces. Um, but over the past decade plus, uh, we have seen the, the cresting of the economic choices we made for, for, for the previous generation. And that has meant that there are pockets of the country that are just stuck, just permanent poverty. Albany, the reason I was there was because it statistically experienced the worst recession in the country in terms of the, the poverty rate spike. But you could spit and hit a county in South Georgia uh, that had a similar story. And, and I just returned recently from Southeast Kansas um, that has a very similar story. All of those places in Southeast Kansas is all white. Um, and, and Southwest Georgia uh, is, is black and white along these lines. This is a long windup to say that, that the tension and the stasis um, that the pressure cooker of poverty that is in these places with no, no answer down there. We have, we have no answer for what we're going to do about Albany, about Montgomery County, about Southeast Kansas. And so what people cling to are some of these really deeply felt cultural divides. You know, um, I, I do think that the, um, that the King's quote remains one of the most relevant things that we need to understand about race in America. You know, his, his famous line that, uh, uh, I'm going to screw it up now because I'm not Martin Luther King, um, that, uh, that, that the white man took 
uh, took freedom and gave the black man Bible, gave black man the Bible, and uh, and 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 took opportunity and gave the poor white man Jim Crow. Uh, and and when he when his when his stomach cried out in hunger, he fed him this gamey old bird. And I, and I think there's a lot of that in Southwest Georgia. I think there's a lot of that in um, in Southeast Kansas. And I and I and I think we have to understand that context when we look at Norman, when we look at Charleston, Justin, when we look at Charleston, when we look at all of these places, we need to understand that context that that there are huge swaths of America that are just in permanent poverty, uh, and and we're going to have all kinds of problems that are going to grow out of that. And when you think about Charleston uh, and everything that's happened in the last few days there, and the conversation about um, you know the Confederate flag, what lessons or you know what do you, what do you, what, what comes to mind? I mean, I just. I'm just blown away that there's just every single week there's another tragedy. It's just so awful. And, you know, even when, when I worked on this film, you know, I felt like in the beginning race was a dirty word. And now, um, you know, as the years went on, it felt like, you know, people are starting to open their eyes and talk about it. But it's, it's so crazy because it's so sad how such a tragedy, tragedies keep happening and happening and happening. They've been happening, but that it's, it's taken that for people to start talking about these things. It's just, it's sad. I mean, it's, it is sad. I, I will say, and I am, am a, a world-renowned cynic, so, uh, so, this, so, so this comes, this, this bit of optimism, I think it comes from something good, is that, you know, if you think back to, you know, around 2009, I think it was, whenever Ben Jealous was taking over the NAACP, um, and um, so 2009, 2010, I forget when it was, when he was first starting, and he was, you know, a young man who was taking over this old storied civil rights organization, and there was a lot of questions about, ooh, what is, you know, what's this going to mean? And one of the things he said at the time was, you know what, a civil rights issue, the core civil rights issue we need to focus on, criminal justice. And he made Troy Davis, if you recall, the, the, the man that was executed um, in uh, Georgia, uh, a cause celebrity. And at the time, everybody was saying, ooh, is this going to work for him in the black community? The question was, like, could you make criminal justice an issue for black people? Because even in, in, in old civil rights circles, there was, it was still sort of a third world. People felt like, hey, listen, you know, pull up your pants. We got too many thugs and criminals out here, and the war on drugs is doing something. That, it was controversial just in 2009 for the NAACP to take this up. That would be absurd now to ask whether criminal justice is, uh, is a core civil rights issue. And that happened in the last 12 months, that change. And, um, and so that's a big deal. I mean, I think... Uh, I've, I've heard folks point out, and, uh, and, uh, and I think someone said it, I think someone asked Hillary Clinton this today at her, her town hall meeting, you know, America has a remarkable capacity for change uh, and rarely has the will to do it. <laughs> but at those moments when, the, when we have a breaking point, big things can happen. We act. That really is true. Um, and... Uh, and you know, I think we're heading towards a breaking point on some of this stuff. I, I, I really do, um, at least on criminal justice, um, because it's gotten it's gotten unbearable. And open the floor to the audience. Any questions or thoughts for Jillian or Kai, um, sir? Holding on for one second. Uh, so hang on, a mic is coming your way.
Just uh, quickly, your focus on swaths of poverty, I think, is hitting right on what maintains the racial bigotry and problems. But what do you think is the scenario by which that those swaths of poverty will be wiped up? Well, it's tough because the because the political reality makes it hard to envision it happening. But we need massive investment. It's just the same way that we wipe them out. In, in past, the same way that we created an entire middle class following uh, World War II, the same way that we have, uh, that we stopped greater swaths of poverty coming uh, in 2009 when we had a, had a stimulus. We have to have massive public investment, and it's hard to imagine that in the current political climate, despite my, so I'm going back to my cynicism. <laughs> it, is, it is hard to imagine the level of investment we will require to make a place just Southwest Georgia, just Southern Georgia, just to make them, never mind everywhere else, just to make them work out, it's hard to imagine. The closest thing we got was, okay, well, we'd have Medicaid expansion, which is not, it's not fully understood as how big a deal it is. It's the largest expansion of a poverty program since 1965, but, Half the states, including Georgia, refuse to participate. Um, so it's, I, I, it takes massive public investment. We are not ready to make that investment. So a hand like right behind you, sir. A microphone is coming your way. Thank you. Um, first of all, thank you for shedding light on this. I read about this a couple of years ago um, in, I don't know, it was the New York Times or New York Magazine, et cetera. Um, I have more of a comment um, my comment one is that desegregation does not necessarily equal integration. Um, so not that I'm in favor of having the two proms, but I think one of the nuances was that only one of the prom was not integrated, which was the white prom. Um, the film started off with the white young woman saying that she was allowed to go to the black prom, but she wasn't allowed to go to the white prom. So I think that's a nuance that needs to be um, acknowledged. Secondly, I think we have segregation here in the city, whether it's based on poverty or whatever. You can look at our schools, our neighborhoods, etc. But once again, thank you for shedding light on this. I mean, when I heard the comment from uh, the young white woman who said that she was, uh, you know, allowed to go uh, happily to the black prom, I, I immediately thought about um, the black folks in the church in Charleston. I mean, I just can, I mean, imagine them seeing this young white man walk into the church and absolutely welcoming him with open arms and such innocence. Um, and it's a reminder that, you know, black folks are extraordinarily... Um, open people in a country that probably does not deserve our, um, you know, our openness. And um, so, so yeah. Any other thoughts? You? Uh, sure. Thank you all for being here today. Uh, one thing that I noticed that was prevalent in the film and I just wanted to pose to you all is, how do you think that the current judicial system counters or takes into account the present of implicit bias or biases? And, and whether it doesn't, how do you think we can in decision-making, especially in the absence of, of non-trials and things that don't have a trial? Well, it really does, but it can. You know, there are um, some pilots out there, and I'm not going to be able to remember off the top of my head where, but there have been, I think Chicago, there have been efforts uh, in jurisdictions to, to create um, uh, implicit bias checks in the process. So there's uh, there's there's one jurisdiction where they got 
uh, judges to keep a list, a checklist on their uh, uh, podium at the sentencing hearing uh, where they would have to go down this list that were a bunch of prompts to make them say, "Are you is, is implicit bias at work right now?" So, it was it Milwaukee. So, so, so there are there are places where people are actively trying to fix this and, and trying to to deal with implicit bias in the justice system. It can be dealt with, um, but but it doesn't seem to be widespread. Hi, um, thank you all so much. It's it was moving and fascinating and sad at the same time. I think, Jillian, for you. Um, watching this community for so long, you know, I do public relations and being a cynic, I would think the town, if I was running the town, I'd say, let's do this movie, you know, make sure people think we're trying to address this problem. But I don't, you know, in terms of actual change in Montgomery, do you think that watching these, you know, these, these people through the years, do you think this movie has helped address those issues? Or do you think it was a matter of, we can't get this reporter off our back. Let's do this movie. You know, people will talk about it in New York and we'll carry on, you know? Um, I was definitely uh, a thorn in a lot of people's sides. <laughs> but I can say, and I'm not, I truly have seen change. And I think the change is with the children. Like, the, the, the kids are what kept me coming back. The kids are what gave me hope. And ultimately the kids are really taking matters into their own hands. You know, it's kind of amazing because since, I was very scared before this. I mean, no one had seen the film. I, I When I finished it, I brought it to Norman. I brought it to the lawyers. I screened it for Dee Dee and the family. So it was very important for the main characters to see the film, but I didn't know what, what how the community at large would respond. And it's been kind of amazingly positive. Kids are from 2009 prom, or they're having um, conversations on Facebook. This one kid was like, I'm so sorry. I didn't realize how much we hurt you. I mean, that's the amazing thing. People are communicating in the town with each other. It's, it's happening, and it's real, and that's what's inspiring for me. How did Norman? Yeah, that, actually, that was my question. Go ahead. Norman thought it was fair. Other questions from the audience? One more. One more. Um, yep. There's a mic. There's a mic. That was my prom in a nutshell. Um, I grew up in Southeast Virginia. Not the separated ones, but the dancing at the end. Um, <laughs> so my question was, I guess I was curious when Kiki said that she was leaving. Um, statistically, does that, are the young people, I keep hearing about my generation moving to the cities. That's where the jobs are. Are people fed up with this and in, you know, southwest Georgia, um, are they just leaving? Are they, are they leaving the older folks who are clinging to their traditions to cling to them? Well, Kiki actually went back. <laughs> Why? Because ultimately that's home. And as many people leave, they, they end up, as I've seen throughout the years, they leave and then they come home, because that's home. There are people that stay, you know, Anna and Julie, their parents are still there. The, uh, Anna's the original girl who wrote the letter. She moved away to Atlanta. Um, but most of the people that have moved away have actually come back. I've seen the whole cycle. 
Sadly, Kiki is the is the exception to the rule in, in these kinds of places. Statistically, people are in, are in fact leaving and 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 not going there. So they're aging and dying towns. But there are the there are the people. You know, I, I think of a few people I met in Albany. You know, who are um, uh, could have the sorts of jobs and degrees that would allow them to be middle class. Um, they would do way better if they just moved up to Atlanta. Um, but they've stayed there, and they've stayed there because of what you're talking about. The people who stay, it's because of community and because of home um, and because of the power of community that they have there. And that maybe is also, you know, so I said it takes a massive public investment to fix these places. It also takes real community and real strength, and that's the strength that's already there um, because of people who do stay, and, and they stay because of the community. So, uh, One more question. Is that okay? Sir. A mic is coming your way. Um, I may not be the only person who was wondering about this, but Norman's biracial daughter, how did she fit into this whole picture? Did she feel in any way conflicted by the fact that her f white father killed a black boy? And more generally, how did she fit into this whole community? Good question. Um, so we kind of left that it, it was very difficult to decide what to include and and that just opened up a whole other <laughs> it, it was it's complicated enough and I actually didn't gain access to Danielle until way till the very very end um, so she felt very conflicted I mean people would make fun of her she didn't know where she fit in um, in the whole community and um, you know, she felt like she connected more to the black community, but she had this father that she really loved. That's her, that's her father. And, you know, you, you heard her acknowledge that um, had he not been white, he'd still be locked up. So she, she's aware of it. Uh, you've invested nearly 15 years of your life um, documenting this community. Um, how has this whole process changed you? Good question. Um, I think, um, well, I, I was so moved by, I really kind of became very close to the, the young, the youth, and I felt, um, I don't know, I just couldn't, I couldn't let it go. And I, maybe it just, I, my gut, it made me realize to trust my gut because everything, nothing supported me going back there. <laughs> You know, the world was telling me, stay the hell away from this place <laughs> and just go, like, you know, leave it. Just why do you need to go back there? But, you know, I really trusted my gut and I knew that there was some important work to be done there. And um, I just, I just, so this is kind of, um, and, and there's, we want to do a whole, you know, we're doing a lot of educational outreach and that's really important to me. I want this to be in schools. I want people to, to use this as a, a vehicle to have discussions. So for me, it's, um, I want the film to do the work that um, work, you know, and, and, it, and I'm happy I trusted my gut. What's next for you? Good question. Um, I am working on a short film about transgender. I'm finishing up a short film about transgender in the military and I have other photo projects that I have down the pipeline. Now you're filming. Exactly. <laughs> Congratulations. And thank you. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Thank you. thank you for listening to this New America NYC podcast. This recording carries a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, share alike, 
4.0 international license. To learn more about New America, please visit us at newamerica.org.